0: You know, there's these un- unintended positive consequences of this sort of convergence of these exponential technologies all hitting the physical world for really the first time, I think, in our collective lives um, where everything's up for for grabs in terms of uh, what can be transformed.
1: Hello, and welcome to the AtanaCast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, TechCrunch editor, um, actually, a transportation editor. I just gave myself a promotion. That's amazing. <laughs> you
2: deserve it. <laughs> I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous: the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. Short intros today. I'm Alex Roy, founder of the
3: Human Driving Association, formerly of Argo AI, whom I never represented on this show, uh, and the founder of Geotagic Consulting, but there's more big news coming. And I want to introduce someone who has stolen my title. As most interesting man in transportation and mobility, from the moment I met him, I I'm like, how, where did this person come from? How, they can't truly exist. Um, Cyrus Sagari, the managing partner at Up Ventures, and we'll just let him speak for himself. I can't Alex, wait to hear what he has to say.
1: What? First what? of all, it's it's Up Partners. Oh fuck!
3: I gotta do it over. <laughs> Sorry, I gotta do my intro over. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay. okay.
0: Here go. No, cut <laughs> that. Cut
3: that. All right, I'll do it over. Okay. Um, <laughs> He's co-founder and managing partner at Up Partners. We'll discuss the title of the company. Cyrus, welcome to the
0: Atomicast. Thank you, Alex, so much for having me, and to the rest of your colleagues. It's great, great to be here.
1: <laughs> well, I take credit um, for introducing you to, I you, believe, you because in the green I, I, at your event. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I just remember the first time I met you, Cyrus. I was like, "Oh, I I know who you need to meet. You need <laughs> to meet someone with." Equally as much gravitas and you know interesting from foot to head to foot head head to toe, um which was Alex, of course, so finally made it happen.
0: you know he was wearing a really cool white leather jacket when I met him. I'm like, this is either going to be awesome or terrible you know as, as we started having a conversation, and thankfully, it was an amazing conversation I really enjoyed it. oh that's that's yeah. how the cowboy had, yes. Yeah.
3: Can we skip to what matters here? The reason Cyrus is here is because for many years there were you could count on on one hand the the venture funds that mattered in transportation. And the ones that mattered were Friends of this pod. You have Michael Grant, Mandy Mobility, Michael Granoff, you have Riley Brennan, and then you have the one of the most interesting and newest funds, which is now right up there and really matters. And they are not small and that's Up Partners. Cyrus, tell us about the, the birth of Up Partners and where you see yourself in the sector.
0: Yeah. Well, um, really, the, the birth of the firm started around uh, 2017 when we hosted our first Up Summit um, in partnership with the governor of Wyoming, uh, where we said, hey, let's just get who we thought mattered around the future mobility together in, in a room and see what happens. And it was only about 40 folks or so. Um, but there were leaders, you know, board members from Porsche and Joe Ben from Joby and a bunch of folks across ground mobility, air mobility. And we said, We don't have an agenda. We just want to put you all together and see what happens. And it was magical. Companies were founded there, companies were funded there, partnerships were formed. And everybody said, Do that again. And then we did it again in 2018 in partnership with um, Tom and Stuart Walton of the, the Walton family, which is the majority owner of, of Walmart, who were close personal friends and had a kind of a keen interest in sort of this really exciting future of mobility. And we said, Hey, we just did this thing in Wyoming. They said, "Well, let's do it in Arkansas and see what happens." And it was awesome. Wired magazine called it the secret conference uh, plotting the launch of flying cars. Five companies launched their products there, uh, and everybody walked away saying, "Hey, we're not sure what we just experienced, but do it again." (laughs) And uh, then we did that in 2019 in partnership with Ross Perot Jr. Um, And that—that's really where kind of the event itself took on a life of its own, and really was an opportunity for us to recognize that there's a platform to be built. We—we had about 160 people get together at at Ross's ranch. Uh, We had 30. 30 folks speak over a two and a half day period and 500 million bucks was invested into the entrepreneurs on stage from the people in the room. And and that wasn't our grandmaster plan. It was simply just a consequence of bringing together some really incredible entrepreneurs with some really like thoughtful, um, exciting investors in curating in a really special space. And that was sort of the founding story. All our friends said, Hey, you guys are onto something here, build a platform so we can invest with you. And you know, the rest is history from there.
1: I actually went to one of your events um, and so did Alex. That was this past summer. And so it's interesting to me that the fund grew out of kind of an event. Um, what was it? Was it just that the the feedback that you got was so compelling? I mean, was there something that said, okay, now we're going to raise funds for this? You could have just kept doing the event and been sort of the thought leadership and just have this annual event every year. Why take the extra step of not only creating up partners, but now up labs, which is a whole nother thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, getting getting people together is is great, but you need to have figure out a way to like keep the energy going throughout the year and to really have impact. And really the 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 dedicated fund, which you know, and fund one is we've got about 250 million um allocated toward towards that, um, a way for us to year round be able to have line of sight in terms of what's exciting, what's worth Showcasing to some of the most important people in the world, and and storytelling, and, and and create partnerships between these incredible big corporations and entrepreneurs, and so it really was just an extension of what made us want to put the event together in the first place, which is to cause activation, and how can we continue to um, amplify the activation, but well by having very directed, thoughtful capital and a and an organization that can prosecute. Um, you know, last year we saw about eighteen hundred. Deals at the top of the funnel, and we invested in about eight of them. You know that that's a lot of work to be able to keep that all, all going. So ultimately, is to to keep our, our our mission going forward.
2: Deploying capital was the most effective way to be able to do that. What was so so I I love things where you know you just kind of pull people together and something and something comes out of it i mean but but something does come out of it in that you 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 know you, you may not know what to expect but but themes emerge and 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 surprising insights you know come out of these kinds of of get-togethers, what has been, um, and like maybe let's focus on like what investors are, are interested in investing in because I think that's something that in various future mobility sectors is a, is is top of mind right now. What what are some of the things that you learned out of um, these these gatherings um, that kind of maybe surprised you or, or opportunities you didn't necessarily anticipate um, specifically on the investor side that that just kind of came out of getting people into a room and getting people talking to each other.
0: You know, one of the things that was really both surprising and not surprising is, um, how thirsty people were for inspiration and to have a safe space where they can, um, spend time learning about things that could actually change sort of the fabric of society. And I think, you know, by virtue of the three of you call it the four of us being, you know, all in on mobility, mobility is the underlying fabric of society and it is what connects us as humans and if we're at this inflection point where we can transform the way people and goods move on the ground, air, sea and space in ways that we've only imagined that that's a very humanistic thing to get excited about and and so it kind of goes back to your question seeing you know the eyes of the CEO of Walmart light up when he walked into a room to see us a, a space shuttle that was sitting inside of you know a building in Bentonville Arkansas to you know creating these you know, unexpected connections. Where you know one of our our, our friends that runs a large pension fund and invested one hundred, two hundred million dollars into one of the companies we invested in, just by virtue of a a coffee over over you know you know in between presentations. So these these organic collisions that create movement um, was both surprising and, and not surprising. I think in terms of like themes, you know, we've been doing this now for since 2017. So the things have changed, but I can tell you what themes right now are particularly interesting to folks, which is probably most interesting to to a lot of your, your listeners, which, you know, if you look at mobility, it's, it is the single largest contributor to CO2 emissions. 38% of global CO2 emissions come from, from mobility. And so it, it's an interesting element when you look at the single largest area of new investment right now, sustainability related investments. And if mobility is the largest area of that, Therefore, mobility is perhaps the largest area of investment globally right now for real change to be able to affect kind of humanity in a really thoughtful way. I think the a couple of really specific things that jump out is how do we as a society responsibly transition to this electric vehicle thing? I think there's all this excitement with you know the work that uh, your favorite person, Elon, has done. And, and and all the other automotive manufacturers in terms of going electric, but there are some pretty significant like consequences in the not good direction if this happens too fast, um, and, and very discreetly as it relates to the, the raw materials. I mean, there's there's an expectation of 10x the amount of lithium-ion batteries created last year to be needed by 2030, and there is like no pathway that I can see of how we're actually going to source that, that kind of material between lithium, cobalt, and nickel, and so... What are technologies that we can be investing in to either create new material bases or to better recycling, like the work that um, J.B. Straubel is doing at Redwood? Um, everything in that ecosystem applies to everything around the future mobility, land, air, sea, space. That's, that's one specific area. Um, I can go into a, a bunch of others, but just a, a discrete answer to your question.
1: Yeah, you, you have this, uh, I think it's your first, the Moving World Report um, that came out that kind of touches on this a little bit. Um, and it's really an exploration of macro and micro trends in mobility. And when you talk about this transition to EVs and sort of this, there's a big governmental push, um, not just in the U S now, but of course, Europe. Um, and then be, you know, early days, it was California and Europe, um, both putting, emi- you know, stricter emissions regulations, which propelled, you know, this movement towards EVs, but now you're seeing lots of incentives and stuff like that. So, how is up partners thinking about its investments based on this trend which is this really big push to transition to evs many automakers deciding to go all electric um, are you focusing your attention and in, uh, investment efforts on companies in the recycling raw materials and battery tech so using less cobalt and nickel or on the other side of things, which is like endpoint user, like the charging networks and things like that.
0: Yeah, I'd say we've got four investments that kind of touch the things that you just described there. Uh, One investment that we made recently is a company called Aonix, which is using um, AI on top of material science platform to help battery manufacturers discover new formulaic, Constructions to make better batteries, so it's really a platform picks and shovel sort of play that various battery manufacturers can take advantage. Um, and and of course the favorite two letter word that is joure right now, which is AI, on top of this really exciting new new technology. So so that's one. We have an investment in another company called Unit X. This is really really exciting. Um, Unit X is using AI and computer vision specifically for inspecting batteries. So you know one of the, the biggest challenges that battery manufacturers have is maintaining very high quality of the batteries that go out of their their factories. Well, what happens when you have bad quality batteries? They catch on fire. That's really not good. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen an electric car fire. Uh, It goes on for about 45 minutes and it doesn't go out with water. So like, actually putting out uh, EV battery fires is a really interesting area for investment. Like, Whoever can figure out how to do that in a rational way, because eventually all fire departments are going to figure out what better way to do that. But um, so what uh, Unidex does is use it, use this very special light and camera fixture in battery manufacturing facilities to be able to do very high fidelity, low escape rate, um, inspection of batteries so that you have high quality products. So they're deployed in Tesla and a bunch of other large, large facilities. And we've got a, a couple other on the sort of the actual operation side, uh, one is range energy, which have you, have you talked to range yet? I've got to, to see what they're up to.
3: I, I actually I just went, yeah. I went to go visit range recently. Uh, to, and I saw Ali cause Ali, the founder came to the Atonicast party at CES. And I don't take this personally, Cyrus. I, I visit a lot of startups. And I'm like, eh, they're, what you're doing is awesome. I was absolutely shocked and blown away. Um, you, you want to explain it? Or should I tell you what I saw?
0: What your take is? Because let's, I because oh, go sell
3: <laughs> All I knew, all I knew going in is like, ah, there's trailers, there's batteries on the trailers, like whatever. I thought I heard everything. I go, we go to the office. The parking lot has a Porsche, an 88 or 87 911 Carrera, all tricked out in it. A BMW 2002, somebody resto modded this thing. Like, I'm like, whoever did these cars, if they're at range energy, this looks promising. Go in the lobby. Ali comes out, and uh, he's the founder, Javadan. And expl- and by the way, his co- uh, I guess the guy who runs marketing over there was one of the founders of Radwood, which if you're into cars at all, this was the OG event that brought back the coolness of 80 car- 80s cars. So I'm predisposed to like what I was going to see. And then we go into the back. There is a, they had a trailer which had batteries built into it with motors built into the trailer that allow you to connect this EV trailer power trailer to a truck of any kind It's totally agnostic which improves the fuel economy of any truck that's pulling it but here's the kicker when you unhitch it there is a control module attached to the front near the hitch point with a, with a, a joystick which let with hat which like it almost like an Airbus has like less than 1 degree of play in it allows you to move the trailer around fully loaded around a terminal hub or wherever um, by its own power. So there are so many dimensions here that are interesting. And he was also, Ali, one of the OG folks at Tesla who worked on the Model S powertrain. So I was very, I would have written a check personally if I had met him in its earlier days.
0: Did I capture well, you, it, Cyrus? You, you would have, if you had met everybody at the Up Summit. he was there. Uh, so you, you could have written a check beforehand, but... Uh, yeah Ali is uh, is awesome and an exceptional uh, founder. He's really great. And, you know he and you know when you go back to the effectively you know he, he, being that he was I think he ran prototyping a Model S, so you know very early at Tesla, and he saw that everybody is focusing on electrifying the thing in the front. Nobody has been thinking about electrifying and transforming the thing in the back, getting pulled. And, um, you know, the, the really interesting example he would give is if, if you were to take, you know, a typical load, like, I don't know, a boat and put it behind a Rivian truck, you know, your 300 mile range goes to like a hundred.
1: hundred. Yeah.
0: Good luck. Ali <laughs> <something>. solves that. <laughs> yeah. so not only do you get, uh, you know, your full range, you can actually go range, be a range extender by virtue of you're carrying, you know, a trailer that has its own uh, battery management system, and m- even more importantly, safety system built in. So one of the things that range is, is solving is not only solving range issues, it's also fixing the jackknife issue. And the jackknife issue for trailers is huge. I mean, you look at all this hazmat stuff that's happening where these trailers are falling in the middle of highways, like that happened in not too far from you, Kirsten, there was that one in Tucson um, mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago, or last week, um, You it they, these won't... Uh, Jackknife, because you've got actual, you know, effectively control system in, in the drivetrain. So that was a long-winded answer to your short question. <laughs> <earlier>. <laughs> <laughs> it kicked up range energy. But,
1: but it, it's interesting because actually it has a compelling um, application even to um, non-EV uh, vehicles. So if you are, you know, if you're semi truck isn't electrified that's okay it would still help with range it would help with fuel range right because it's power behind um there's a company called lightship i believe that's trying to do the same thing with with like rv trailers and certainly they're marketing towards the rivians of the world but it also is compelling for the you know gas powered F 150 because it will help you know you're pulling less weight as a result so those types of things where they can be applied to both electrified but also non-electrified I find compelling because it's almost like a bridge technology um, that can be used today and also, you know, you don't have to wait on electric semi-truck, right?
0: Yeah, you know, that the the actual number I, th- I think that Ali and his team have figured out is that it increases fuel efficiency by close to 40% for a diesel-powered truck. So, you know, if you're a Walmart, Amazon, Target, FedEx whatever, you know, as, as opposed to having to go retrofit your entire fleet with electric trucks, you can have a significant impact by just taking care of the trailer and then solving this whole moving them around in the yard. You don't have to have a, a tractor attached to it to move it. This is a big deal. You can literally move it by hand on, in, in a yard. So, you know, there's these uni- unintended positive consequences of this sort of convergence of these exponential technologies all hitting the physical world for really the first time, I think, in our collective lives. Um, where everything's up for for grabs in terms of uh, what can be transformed.
1: What is a metric that you're using? Because I'm sure you get a lot of pitches. I mean, I get a lot of pitches. <laughs> I'm sure you get a lot. Um, in terms of deciding not just the company, which might be more about the founder, but the actual um, technology. Do you have a list where you're like, I want to have a battery tech company. I want to have you know, something in, um, on the consumer end of things, like how are you going about choosing, um, or narrowing down the companies that you want to invest in?
0: Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely have like things we're looking for. Um, like give you an example. We, we look for things that aren't going to change even if the economy changes. So as an example, and this came one of the the data points that came out of our moving world report, um, which, you know, it, it, we're looking at everything, ground air, sea space, which is on our website. Anybody can can go download um, around aviation in particular. One of the biggest issues that people aren't talking about, that we should be talking about every single day on CNN, Fox, whatever it might be on your shows, is the upcoming pilot shortage by 2030 we're expected to be 65,000 pilots short. Okay, what does that mean? That means, like, going to New York, LA, that's fine. But getting to Bozeman, Montana, good luck. Getting to secondary tertiary markets where airlines aren't, aren't going to be able to uh, have the crew. I mean, flying airlines right now sucks anyways, let alone you extrapolate to the point where we, we don't have enough pilots to, to, to fly these machines. So one, secondary tertiary markets are gonna be very challenged as it relates to getting airline travel. Then their respective economies get affected by it. Then Boeing, Airbus, Embraer, Bombardier, they don't get to build as many airplanes for these airlines to go fly. And you think about the jobs that are created around building of airliners, and then the fuel. It's a massive, in my opinion, like national security issue for our economy for us not to have our airline transportation system well-staffed. So this is not going to change. Like no economic drivers unless you know, I, I can't figure out what would be a, a reason as to why we would all of a sudden have 65,000 pilots show up out of nowhere. So technologies that can significantly reduce the cost of creating pilots to make it safer to create pilots, to effectively shorten the time frame and perhaps some regulatory changes that can allow us to create pilots quicker and sooner and safer, are things that we're really excited about. Um, so that's just one example but again, as a direct result of some of the work that we did in our most recent, um, uh, research project.
1: Well, and it's not just your research project though, that has driven your interest in aviation. You're a pilot yourself. Correct. And is that, I mean, going to your up summit before it was really heavily weighted, although not the only group of people there, but heavily weighted towards the a- aviation. Is that kind of what initially sparked your interest in sort of mobility altogether because you were a pilot and because this was, um, just something that because of this problem that you just, um, laid out or, or did that come later? The, yeah. this sort of interest in aviation.
0: So let me kind of go back to the sort of origin story for me. I've been, I've been flying for 30 years, started when I was 11 years old and, um, you know, it at 16, got my license at 17, became a flight instructor while I was in high school, studied aerospace engineering in university worked as an aerospace engineer test pilot flight test engineer and have built aviation related businesses and and certainly that's like turning my passion into my profession but at the core of aviation is other than flying on a rocket ship the most profound example of mobility like i i can be where i want to be as quickly as i want to be as quicker than anybody else there's nobody can get there quicker than i can like other than enough a, on a, a fighter jet And, and that ability to see the world and to connect and to do commerce and to be inspired and to share experiences to me is like this, this beautiful uh, exemplar of what the pinnacle of mobility represents. And my, just specifically around aviation, this is a stunning statistic. Only one out of five living human beings has ever been on an airplane. Like I assume most of your listeners have been on an airplane And if you think about like how aviation has affected their lives to see family, to go to college, to go to a job interview, whatever it is, if aviation wasn't a part of their life, like their lives would be fantastically different. There's 80% of humanity that hasn't benefited from that. And so this idea of expanding the benefits of flight to, um, you know, the remaining 80% that aren't quote unquote online, like was the underlying core of my personal interest and excitement around sort of the future mobility. But what became very clear is that as we're reaching this inflection point around the, call it the electrification of aviation and the automation of aviation and the democratization of aviation through electric vertical takeoff landing vehicles and drone delivery and all the other sort of cool things you're seeing, these key enabling technologies span across all forms of mobility. It's autonomy, it's battery management, it's new power sources, it's new materials, new manufacturing technology. So really opening the aperture up to be less focused on the mode of delivery, but really thinking, how do I move an atom from A to B as efficiently as possible? And it may be on the ground, maybe in the air, maybe in the sea, maybe in space, maybe on a scooter. It doesn't really matter. But let, let, let's be as um, uh, focused on being as practical and efficient as possible. Porsche
3: has Porsche Ventures. They've been investing for years. You've got the lab project. Porsche is involved with that. Like, what is the relation between up partners, <laughs> Porsche ventures and up labs? And what are you working on? That's different.
0: Yeah. So up labs is our, uh, corporate venture studio where we, uh, partner with, uh, the largest companies in the world to create a, create start startups in partnership with them that address their core strategic problems, that are also problems of other companies in the ecosystem, and so what, what's really interesting is, is, you know, we we had our announcement with uh, Porsche last year, and and have got additional large partners that we'll be talking about more publicly in the not so distant future. Is what entrepreneurs want are the problems of big big companies, like those are super valuable. Getting the data as to what their pain points are that's not easy to, to tease out. A lot of times entrepreneurs say, Hey, I think this is a problem. Then they'll spend a year or two trying to get product market fit, and maybe somebody will pay for it. Maybe they won't. And maybe they'll get a meeting with who the real decision makers are. They won't. There's, it's a very, it's a tough process to really figure out. But really, if you understand what the core problems of a corporate are, and then you, if you're able to match up world class top entrepreneurs that have real economic upside in solving that problem and that the solution can scale to other um, companies in and around the space, you've got a really unique model. And so what Uplabs is doing is creating a mechanism for large corporates to partner with us where we are able to go through a process to help identify what the most meaningful problems are to go solve. And um, you know, we're, we're launching, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but you know, at, at uh, South by Southwest, we're launching our, our first company, um, with, with Porsche, which is really, really exciting. In fact, it goes back to some of the battery stuff we talked about before. It, it's, you want to
3: announce it now, Cyrus? Wants
0: to yeah, tell I, us Unfortunately, I'm not quite sure I can. I'd get in a lot of trouble. But um, but it's 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 very, very cool. And, and it can really only happen when you have sort of this convergence of being able to track world-class talent that can go solve these problems sort of outside of the veil of the corporate, but with all the assets of the corporate. Um, and, and so we're building two companies a year in partnership with with Porsche and with our other large corporate partners. And, and it's a really great sort of uh, funnel for the fund to be able to invest into, to help grow these companies up.
1: It's interesting, the Uplabs, because I think of it as a new financial instrument in a way. It's not really an incubator per se. Would you agree with that assessment?
0: Yeah. So th- this is a, a pretty unique um, financial arrangement. and sort of model that um has been put together between our team and and our, our partner in this case Porsche, where first off the, the process in itself. Again, we we are over the next three years have committed to build six companies together. Um and so that that's pretty significant, both from a capital allocation perspective and sort of resources and time. Um and then it's the, the process to be able to get to that. You know, we we went we've gone through a very, very diligent process to really understand what the core problems are that we can go solve collectively. And, you know, it started off with like six ideas that matriculated out to 200 ideas, and then has kind of weaned back down to about two ideas for this year. And in those two ideas, really have gone through an incredibly rigorous investment committee process with our team, their team, that hits uh, viability, compatibility, feasibility, and, you know, how quickly can we get this product to market that addresses your core strategic problems that has huge potential financial upside if we solve the problem for everybody? Um, so there, there's a lot of uniqueness there that that you wouldn't find in a traditional, quote unquote, incubator. Um, but um, it's so far, it, it's going quite good and looking forward to uh, continue to, to work with our partners to help address their issues.
1: How much can you scale this so you are working with Porsche now but you've mentioned a couple times that you would work with other um large companies so is this infinitely scalable and you can have 20 different large corporations like a Porsche or is there a limit to it where you're going to look at maybe just two or three um for five year you know tranches and then and then you know lock in a couple um other new ones yeah we're we're
0: being very diligent to, um, focus on a couple of really great partners and just not get out of the park with them. So we, we have another large corporate that, that has remained stealth at this point that we're working with. um, and we'll probably add two more in the next year. So at, at, you know, in the net within call it two years total, we will be at, at four corporate partners and putting out about eight companies a year and, and really Our sort of internal thinking is within five years total to have a total of 10 partners, which we'll be putting out about 20 companies a year um, to address their specific core strategic issues. Part of the strategy is also we want to pick a partner in a domain and in mobility and not create any sort of competitive issues within that. So there's only so many domains and there's, you know, land, air, sea, space, operator, OEM. You know that only gives us so many to to go after, um, and frankly, that's that's a lot of work to be able to to manage those those partners in a, in a thoughtful way that can give outsized returns to them and and to to us.
1: Alex or Ed, I can't dominate this entire conversation.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll ask about 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 the um, VTOL because you know you come from an aviation background. It's it's part of this that you're really passionate about, and I'll just be upfront. It's I mean, there's. I have way too much, too many interests, and mobility is way too big of a space. Anyway, we all have to specialize a little bit, and and has always kind of been one of the the areas where I'm just like, a it's just I have too much, and and so it, it's it's a can of worms. But it's also like kind of relatively easy to be skeptical about given some of the challenges around around EVs. What do you what do you say, just sort of at a high level, to someone who is like particularly skeptical about the eVTOL thing, considering it's it's one of your sort of more more areas of focus. I think people should be very skeptical of eVTOL. Um, you
0: know, there's on the order of 600 companies that have said, we're going to go build an eVTOL platform, which, uh, you know, I think as the dust settles, we'll be probably in the order of four to five to maybe 10, you know, one way, shape, or form that have some sort of certified machine. And, and let's just talk about certified machine. What does that mean? And just as some context, it took the largest aircraft manufacturer in the world – two years to recertify one part on the most successful airplane ever built, the 737. So like that, that's a bit of a pause moment for anybody that's thinking about wanting to certify a completely new type of platform with new power plant, new control systems, new manufacturing technologies. FAA takes their sort of role here at safety very, very seriously. Um, And so it is a big, big job to get a, uh, quote EVTOL through, through a certification process. Now, that being said, there are incremental ways that we can, can see EVTOL and sort of the really transformation of aviation becoming more easy to digest and break it up to different elements. So, autonomy is one bucket of it. So, there's about four or five companies that are doing really, really cool, interesting things in and around autonomy Skyrise, X Wing, Reliable Robotics, uh, DataLand. Really breakthrough, cool, cool things. Then you got companies doing really neat, interesting things in around electrification. Some are on the power plant side, like MagniX, um, on the power management side, like EPS, um, battery side. Um, uh, the guys at, uh, at QBERC, they started off in aviation and have come up with really, really interesting battery technology, much higher uh, energy density than, than traditional um uh, lithium ion batteries. Um, and then you go into uh, sort of the multi-copter, quad shapeshifter vehicles. The, the one area within that that I'm really particularly excited about that I think we're going to see in the not so distant future is the non-certified products. So these would fall under the category of ultralight, um, where, you know, this isn't meant to be uber elevate to take, you know, um, Alex from his. Uh, penthouse in Miami from one, one building. Oh, come on. Mm -hmm. I know I can see it. It's a beautiful place, but the top of your building to, you know, the, another building down, down the road in a very dense metropolis sort of area, but think more of like um, the, the farmer who can go explore his, his ranch land in a non dense environment and it's just him flying around or her. So there, there are regulations that allow us to have, smaller vehicles, roughly 600 pounds, um, that don't have to go through the same certification requirements. And there's actually really cool, interesting use cases and applications to, to go do that. Now, they're going to be more risky. People may likely get hurt more so, but it's a little different than, you know, it falling onto a street in the middle of Los Angeles, right? So you, really, you should think about them as more of like, you know, three-dimensional ATV as opposed to quote-unquote flying car. Uh, And in that area, I think, like, we're not not that far away from seeing actually two, three companies coming to market with products, but people paying for them and operating them this year. So um, we could go on literally for as much as you want to on this topic, so...
2: Yeah, no, that's really it's really fascinating. It, it confirms actually what I kind of suspected, which was that like from a distance, we, it's the exact same thing that happens all the time in AVs, which is that it's dominated by this idea of a self-driving car, which is this whole mental construct that comes down to us from a hundred years of you know old GM, you know World's Fair exhibits and all this other stuff, and and really where the, a lot of the exciting stuff in autonomy is actually happening is delivery bots and and semi trucks and things like that, and and in some ways the the self-driving cars are red herring. So it's kind of fascinating that that. EVTOL is, a, is, is similar. I have a question
3: about EVTOL.
2: Yeah, go.
0: Let's hear it.
3: Cyrus, walking into your conference, you know, I'm Mr. Skeptic always. You know, the two big objections to EVTOL are uh, generally just safety, like, like where's the redundancy? The thing just falls out of the sky, power goes out, what, yada, yada. But the second one is noise, because on the assumption that the first one can be solved, at, on some timeline, the first one is guaranteed solvable, but the noise factor, At the last up conference, there was a startup that was talking about noise reduction technology that, and that to me was, seemed like a real game changer. When are we going to see profound reductions in noise from eVTOL aircraft such that they're deployable over neighborhoods, which would otherwise object, which is a big, big, big
0: problem. It's already here. Um, If you ever get a chance to go listen to Joby fly their vehicle. You know, hundred yards away, it sounds like an industrial air conditioner. Like the, the the sound and it's there's a couple things with sound with uh, people and their acceptance of it. One is how loud is it, is it, and second is how annoying is it. Like, where on the frequency range does it sit? Where it literally sounds like a bee, and you want to get away from it, which is actually the physical reaction that we hear when we like drones are flying around. It's like very high, like me sound it's not that far away from the sound of an insect flying around your head and you want to swat it. Um, so what Joby has actually been able to do is to get the frequency and the the, the, the amplitude into a place that's actually very soothing and calm and not uh, abrasive in any sort of way. So I'd say they've actually knocked that out of the park because I listened to it fly at a reasonable distance. And I'm like, I wouldn't mind listening to this if it was flying around in my neighborhood. That's that's first. The other company you talked about there is, is Whisper, uh, which was founded by Mark M- yeah, Mark Moore. Um, and he was, um, you know, very effectively co-founder of Uber Elevate, really awesome guy, um, PhD, NASA background. And, you know, he, he has been around the EV toll. I mean, he could be argued as the father of this whole, uh, movement, you know, cause he, he really was the, the technical leader in the, in the world of Uber Elevate to help sort of bring together what are the real constraints and, um, and the gateways for us to get mass adoption. And noise is absolutely one of them. So he's come up with some really cool technology to um, significantly reduce noise signature that we haven't seen applied in really any other um, pathway. I don't know how public they are about exactly what they're doing, but it's pretty cool. I'm sure we'll see more and more of it. And I'll tell you what: who really cares about noise is the Defense Department. And how do you use these the, this technology um, in a way that can be very, very stealthy from a noise signature perspective. And, you know, you look at what's happening in Ukraine right now, you know, there are a lot of applications for very quiet electric vertical takeoff and landing things, be it carrying people or carrying small payloads. Um, and I don't think that tailwind's going to away, go away for a long, long time in terms of appetite from the DOD to uh, fund dual-use technologies.
2: How how central is that to your investing strategy? I mean, you know, historically aviation, I mean, it's almost all that innovation came out of military, right?
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting is that this is one of the first times you're seeing consumer products influencing military DoD application versus the other way around. Right? And that's that's a really um interesting development in the world of technology investing. And now you're seeing a lot more venture capitalists. Being much more open to in- investing in dual-use-related u- technologies once people start to have a little bit of, like, oh, my goodness, is the Western world lip-life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness at risk, you know, after seeing what's happened in, in Eastern Europe there. Um, so I would say it's it has increased, and I would say it's increased for two reasons. One is I think, like, as somebody who's the child of, of re- political refugees, first-generation um, parents came from Iran like I really am grateful for this country for the opportunity to come here and have a chance to start from nothing and and be able to make my dreams come true and as much as people poo-poo on on America um, I'm not sure there's a better place to go it's pretty good <laughs> you know as it relates to have an opportunity to go make your you know whatever it is you you want to uh, materialize like yes there are, there are restrictions and limitations but like I said, I, I can't think of a better place to, to go alternatively. Yes, Mr. Roy, go.
3: All right, so one of the things I liked about you when we met uh, is that you talked a lot about job creation, a lot. And most VC funds, they're cynical either by omission or by coming out and being very political, and it's not always pleasant. Uh, in Arkansas, at your conference, you talked about job creation. And on this recording, you talked about creating jobs for, uh, or how there's a, sh- a pilot shortage. I visited Telio a few months ago, and they talked about, they do, um, I guess, farming robotics. They talked about how there is a shortage of workers to work on farms. Uh, th- I, how many other verticals exist where there's gonna be a worker shortage? And what do you see is gonna happen?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the whole future of work thing is is really interesting. No, Telio, um, did you guys see the video of that, that mine collapsing in China? Uh, yes. It, yes. It is shocking. There's, you know, hundred uh, pieces of construction equipment with people driving around, and that mine collapses on them, and it's you know they're gone. Um, and Telio actually addresses that specific issue by virtue of giving companies the opportunity to remotely operate these pieces of equipment, where you don't have to have people in there, and um, and they don't have to be sitting in mines and in garbage dumps and chemical areas where work conditions are really crummy um so you you don't have enough people that want to do these jobs partially because they're so dangerous and they're really crummy like human conditions you know if you sit around in an excavator for eight hours a day uh, that's you're not going to feel very good and your hearing's going to go away pretty quick um and there's a, a lot of need for for that sort of uh, work right now interesting you mentioned telio i can't remember which governor it is i think it's either governor of wyoming or montana found out about Telio, where effectively you can remotely operate with joysticks and a little station from the you know comfort of your own home um a piece of construction equipment and they've actually signed a contract with Telio to allow wounded warriors to be able to actually work from home using this equipment that otherwise they wouldn't be able to do anything so you're solving a bunch of interesting issues with that specific application but i think like we could have an entire another podcast just on this whole idea of future work and and um, job creation and, and moving people to new types of jobs than what they were doing already. To answer your question. you don't, you, you don't look satisfied.
3: <laughs> oh, on the contrary, like we could do a whole recording just about this because I mean fundamentally, there is a there is all kinds of weird like tech clash going on. People are just skeptical of the technology in general, fearful of AI, fearful of humans losing jobs to AI. And yet unemployment is extraordinarily low. And there aren't people filling critical jobs that automation could solve. And so this is really interesting. And the political spectrum, like it's not entirely clear who is going to, which political party may come out against automation and why they would at all, given the state of the labor market and the progress that's being made in, in startups. So I, I'm still waiting for the shooter drop for someone to come out and be like, AI just bad. Well, and if it is, then what do businesses do? They have products to sell, they have products to make and customers who want them, and know people to service them. And so this, I think, is like the, the fulcrum of the next 10 years in this country.
1: Since we are almost out of time. I, I, I want to leave a Cyrus
3: respond to that
1: one. Okay, okay, sorry. I don't want to hear the yeah.
0: answer, Alec. It, it's okay. She wanted to save it for the next podcast.
1: <laughs> <All> <laughs> no, right. go ahead, Cyrus.
0: No, I, look, it's, you know, one of the greatest, I, I heard this quote not too long ago, one of the greatest gifts you can give somebody is, is a good job. Like you think about how much of our time as humanity we spend working. And if you can do it in such a way that people are are happy and safe and able to create a living for their family, like that's a great gift. And I think creating tools that can create better jobs than we already have today, just to give you an example, Unidex, there are 10 million people right now today that all they do is sit on a factory line and look at something, go by, look at it and put it down and it goes. That's a terrible job. People literally go blind because of it. And what X does is free up those people to go do much more useful jobs for the betterment of humanity. And I think there's like at the core, once we automate everything, there are only there are two jobs that humans are destined to do, which is to love and to create everything beyond that. I think we can uh, automate out for for your favorite chat GPT or, or autonomous driving vehicle. <laughs> um,
1: Let's not get chat GPT involved in this discussion, okay. Uh, okay. even though it's coming. No, I think that that's, it's interesting because um, job, the whole job issue is very political, but the thing, and, it, and I always hear um, politicians, um, you know, talking about fear of automation and what I always say to them is it's here already, you know, this has already been happening for a long time. And so the question is, um, do you, do you want people to have jobs that they enjoy or some sort of like um, economy that can support that? Or do you want them just to have a job that's actually really terrible? Um, And there is going to be a lot of job loss in that transition. Like we've had in other transitions, even in mobility um, from the horse to the car and all that. So it's going to be interesting to watch where I'm wondering, and, and this is maybe how we can close the show, is what your prediction or forecast might be Um, And how you see that playing out on the mobility front um, in terms of automation and AI, do you see this as something that will be kind of a rough road in terms of job loss and then, you know, later creation? Or will it be slower um, and so easier to adjust?
0: You know, as I think about it, so much of like this whole job loss with autonomy thing is focused on blue collar jobs like the core of America or, you know, the Western world, you know, you're going to put out a taxi driver out of, out of work because of whatever, autonomous driving vehicle. I actually don't think that's a problem at all. I think it's white collar jobs. And I think actually chat GPT is a great example of like how many, you know, people that work on Photoshop every day to, you know, create ads or whatever it might be, their jobs are at risk by virtue of all these tools being, being created to make, make it a little easier for us to do that. So I'm, I'm not particularly concerned. And I look at the things we're doing. Look, people have a really hard time hiring folks. There's there's a shortage of people to do the jobs we need them to do. And so if we can just provide tools to allow it to be done cleaner, faster, safer, lower cost, I think generally people are going to be pretty happy.
1: The one thing, though, is that I'm personally a little wondering about, maybe a little concerned about is, do we really want to be an economy where it's like human beings are doing like what are they doing? Um, are they doing service stuff? Um, if are, are they or are, are they on the creation design part, or is AI going to take over that? And so I sort of wonder um, what the end game will look like. Um, I don't have an answer for what it will look like, but what if they're not doing that? Then what are they doing?
0: Well,
3: theoretically, topic,
1: but I
0: mean, this is this. Is <laughs> Up doesn't invest in those kind of superficial
3: <laughs> sorry, light technologies. Oh, up sorry, invest in things
0: that do are do multiplicative. <laughs> Give me a little a little more like clear self winning for this podcast versus <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, mean, lots of, what the hell are we all gonna do and you yeah. know Saris,
1: all- what are we gonna do?
0: Yeah, I don't. I think we're just going to sit here and have podcasts and have fun, <laughs> yeah. and, and ask Alex if we come hang out his penthouse in Miami. All
1: right, you know,
0: but
3: it, 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 but if you look at the macro, it's certainly in this country, what we need are more technologies that are actually active, hard technologies that move stuff around more efficiently in a market where we have very low un- unemployment, which is what we have, and I. First, I am not interested personally in investing in any of the soft AI technologies. It's not entirely clear they actually improve anything. And, well, let's just say that I'm a supporter of what Up is doing. You are very kind, buddy. Thank Mm. you, Alex.
2: ChatGPT sucks.
3: ChatGPT sucks. Have you guys used it? And we should yeah. wrap it up on that note.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, what, so what a useless technology actually. Do, what does that improve?
1: Well, well let's, revis- kind of space? let's revisit that a year or two from now and see, see where we are on that, on that front. Um,
2: yeah. Wake me up when chat GPT starts moving people around.
1: Yeah. 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 That's just stuff.
2: is trash. Well, actually, did you
0: guys see <laughs> it? Uh, Well, Microsoft is now working on a chat GPT thing that controls robots? Um, and there's a little video about them. like, well, wait a minute. We're not that far away. You know, from, from, uh, anyways, yes, let's, a year that's, from- the, all right, that's the podcast I want to do with you another time, Cyrus.
3: So were, and you on about that note- to,
1: were you about to say the words AI overlords? Were you, was that on the tip of your tongue right there? When-
0: it wasn't, but it should be.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. On that note, Cyrus, thank you so much for joining us. And I think we're all going to be maybe in Austin and we'll, we'll be, I'll be on stage with you guys. So we'll see you in a couple of weeks. And Ed and Alex, thanks for showing up today with your brains intact and ready to talk. And most importantly, to our audience, thank you for listening to another episode of the Atonicast.